Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using the science. science. The, the science. Ooh. It's the science. Yes. We are naming it. We are identifying it. <laughs> I am Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I am Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods, technically faculty at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, though I've been mostly working remotely thanks to this pandemic. <laughs> Yay! You said that like we're supposed to cheer, but I don't really think that's supposed to be our emotional reaction. <laughs> I'm keeping my community safe. Woo-hoo. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something freaking fantastic in pop and culture. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, the psychological toll of emotional work in same sex and different sex marital dyads. And then in good or bad advice, we are going to discuss some advice that I found on the social medias. Doing using the a lot today. We got some Instagram, we got some TikTok, and we got some Twitter. We're, we're doing all of it. As always, if you have advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it in. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or just go to the attachedpodcast.com website and send us a message there. Also, we are now on YouTube, so please like and subscribe to our YouTube page in addition to liking and subscribing to whatever platform you're listening to this wonderful podcast on at this very moment. Also remember, please rate and review. We would appreciate it greatly. We have a really big day today lined up for you, but before we get to all of that goodness, how are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty well. I want to share what I've been doing this weekend because I kind of feel like it's along the lines of like Trisha washing her hair with, was it, was it flour? Was it, what was, what were you using for, I don't remember. Yes, it was rye flour. It's called no poo (laughs) trend. It's very good. I don't know why you're talking about it with such disdain in your voice. We had a lot of listener questions and comments about that episode and your flower (laughs) use. Yeah. Well, so I follow a subreddit called Science. Because, you know, we like science around here. And it's really cool because people post different articles from all over. But you also know that I have five cats, right? And I I do know that. Yes. Two of them are very feral. They were born underneath our deck and um, wandered into our home, but one of them we still have yet to pet. But anyway, this is a long convoluted story, but I'll get to the point. Yeah, we have Reddit, we have science and feral cats. Go on. (laughs) And also my using hair flower (laughs) That's right. So somehow it'll all come back around. It'll all come, it, it's coming back around. Okay, it's okay, I trust you, I trust, I trust. So there was this article that I linked to, and you know, sometimes I don't do the best job of like reading the whole article, but it was about cats. And the article said that if you squint your eyes and then you slow blink at cats, there's research to suggest that they'll actually view you as more friendly and be more likely to hang around you. Right. So I didn't get past the headlines. So I spent the whole weekend 
trying to we have this our uh i spent the whole weekend squinting and slow blinking at my cats and nothing <laughs> happened nothing happened i was so mad and after it wasn't working the whole weekend i went in and read the whole article and they actually did a randomized control trial where they randomized certain people to look at their cats and slow blink and others just to like just sit there okay. and the cats actually were more likely to approach the people that were slow blinking but it's not working for me and i'm so frustrated our youngest cat has not gotten closer to than three feet to me in like a year and a half since it's been in our house so <laughs> If any listeners out there have better ways than slow blinking at cats to get them Surely to there are better ways than slow blinking at cats. I'm really trying to build. <laughs> but go on. It's like the ultimate example I, in social rejection. Like, <laughs> my gosh. I think what I'm most curious about oh, is anyway. the intro to this story, Jacob. Sure. You suggested that it was like my hashtag no poo. So go on, tie that bit together. But you know where he's headed. <laughs> we only read the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like... It's like one of those weird, quirky things that we do oh, because we read something about it okay. that's like better for the environment. Yeah, and even yeah. though it's like only, only like one study or like mm. one thing that's happened, we're like, yeah. oh, I got to try this now. That's See, it all comes back together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, it, tie that in, it's a nice positive reframe. I was <laughs> thinking that Is my it? hair washing routine was like blinking at cats. I couldn't quite tie it together, but. You did a good job. You did a good job. No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel so bad. Yeah, you're good. No, that's good. Well, send in advice oh, about good. how that's to good. get a feral cat to like you. Maybe doesn't involve slow blinking. I like it. What, what you got? Nothing is exciting. Actually, I feel like I have the opposite. I feel like I am building close social relationships with all of my like online shoppers, all of my like delivered to your house shoppers. Aww. I've not been in a grocery store. <laughs> Wait, see, okay. So I feel like that was the same reaction though <laughs> that Jacob's concerned about. I feel like I, um, we're getting closer. Like I keep, yes, I haven't been in a grocery store since, you know, uh, the end of February. I have thankfully brave people who are going out into the world and getting groceries and life supplies for us and we get some of the same shoppers repeat shoppers and I feel like we're just getting really close nice. and I feel like there are indicators <laughs> of the kind of relationship we would have in real life no no that's creepy uh there is no research to suggest they will become closer <laughs> friends with me and but there's I feel like there's indicators of the kind of relationship we might have in real life based on like their out of stock substitutions you know sure, some people just like throw stuff in the bag and like bring it to you and you're like I didn't order any of this and it has nothing obviously obviously you don't have a baseline level of caring about me oh, like that yeah. that's a no-go right but then they're like creative problem solvers like oh they're out of like butter but we substituted, I substituted with like ghee. Like, oh, okay, well that's creative. And maybe like you're really into like international cuisine or I don't know what to do with this, but it it says it won't expire for a while. So that's cool. Or like <laughs> they're out of strawberries, like basic. My, I feel like my grocery store is always, still always out of everything. They're out of strawberries. Like are apples okay? 
I mean, it's not at all the same, but I appreciate like you care about my health and like the number of fruits and vegetables I consume. So like, that's cool. Or like they're out, (laughs) they're out of this bag of Twizzlers. Is it okay if I get you the larger bag of Twizzlers? Like ding, ding, ding. Like we're definitely, yeah, we're we're best friends now. (laughs) So that's what I've been doing. I've been um, occasionally quote, air quote, occasionally ordering some online flies to be delivered to my house and then waiting to see, waiting to see what that, how that text message conversation will develop. That's what I've been doing. I love it. Yeah. Pandemic social life. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag physically distancing, not socially distancing for oh, you there, Sarah. Yeah. There you Thank go. you. Thanks. Yeah. It's a really online dating. Yeah. <laughs> online friend dating. Yeah. So yesterday it was a rainy, somewhat dreary day here in East Tennessee. So we took to cleaning out some closets and I was motivated uh, taking breaks from watching TV shows and playing Candy Crush to clean out the pantry. Yeah, I was very proud of myself. I don't know if we've done a thorough cleaning of that pantry since we've lived here for four years. So, you know, it was time. Um, You guys, I found two unfinished bags of spaghetti, one unfinished bag of linguine, two unfinished bags of penne pasta, and one unfinished box of lasagna noodles. Wow. So guess what we're having for dinner this entire week? Yay. Last Make night we your had, own pastas. Yeah. Last night we had spaghetti. Tonight we're probably going to have linguine or, or penne. <laughs> In the order you found them? Yeah, in the order I found them. I was like, there <laughs> is a lot of pasta in here. So yeah, that was that was surprising to know somehow. And our pantry is not that big. It was like lost in like the recesses of like the mm. corner in the back that doesn't really get mm. light. Found supplies. We're not going to the gro- we're not going grocery shopping today. <laughs> I'll do it for you. We're just gonna eat pasta. <laughs> Yeah, un- unlike you guys that live in places that deliver groceries, we live in the sticks. We don't have that option. Oh, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. No, one, no one wants to drive out where we live. It's fine. It's fine. You're missing out on all your best friends. I know. Making new friends in Knoxville. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. I know you guys were so enthusiastic to hear uh, my take on this last week, but luckily we have Dr. Priest back to give us some great pop and culture. What you got for us this week, Jacob? Well, I was hoping you were going to introduce me as the man, the myth, the legend, but I'll take Dr. Priest. No. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. I wow. so the cat, the cat blinking's not going well, but confidence isn't shaking at all. That's good. <laughs> that's about right for that's about right for me. So. Yeah, it really does feel right. Actually, you're right. Yes, it feels right. <laughs> feels feels very right for me. Yeah. Um, so. We're going to do something a little different. This might be a little bit out of left field for y'all, but I think it's important. So I have never in my life watched something on Facebook Watch. I don't know if y'all have. Nope. But sometimes when I am putting my child to sleep, I like need something to do while he's trying to like, okay, fall asleep, fall asleep. So if you didn't know, in October, it was National Coming Out Day. 
So hopefully when you hear this, this is still going to be on Facebook. You should look for it because it's an awesome, like 30 minute, it kind of follows this guy who is actually a trained marriage and family therapist cool. in his journey coming out to his friends and family. And it's hosted by Demi Lovato and Tan France, two people who are just amazing and have really funny and great conversations. But in thinking about that, I really want to just to provide some guidance on the other end of that. So mm. a lot of people don't know what to do when somebody comes out to them. I think it's important if somebody comes out to you that you kind of know how to navigate that to lend them your support, show them that you care and support them. So this is kind of different in terms of pop culture. So have you all ever heard of Safe Zone? It did that training. Oh, yeah. it's been a lot of years so now. Yeah. Free... Talk to us about it. Yeah, so Safe Zone is kind of a uh, uh, LGBTQ training program that really helps to get basic knowledge about people who identify under the queer umbrella and ways in which you can have conversations around privilege and you can have conversations around what it means to be queer identified and all those types of things. And it's really great. It's free. You can download it. They have videos you can link to. It's all really great. But one of my favorite handouts and whenever I talk in the community about this I make sure to go over is one that they have on the do's and don'ts of coming out which okay. I really like because similar to what we do on this podcast it has good advice and bad advice um so I just want to read these really quick so we'll link to this on our social meds as Patricia likes to say so check this out on Instagram Twitter Facebook all that fun stuff but so here are the do's and don'ts. If someone comes out to you, don't, don't say, I always knew, or mm. downplay the significance of their sharing with you. Don't go tell everybody bragging about, quote, your new trans friend. Right. Don't forget that they are still the person you knew, befriended, or loved before. Don't ask probing questions or cross personal boundaries and then finally, don't assume you know why they came out to you. Mm. So those are the don'ts. And here are the do's. Do know that this is a huge sign of trust. Mm. Do check in on how confidential this is. Nice. Do other people know? Is it a secret? Do remember that their gender slash sexuality is just one dimension of many of who they are. Do show interest and curiosity about this part of them that they are sharing with you. And do ask them how you can best support them. Nice, really nice. Like so, those. Yeah, I, I love them. They're very concrete. They give you some simple do's and don'ts. Um, really intentional. I think it's really, yeah, I think it's really important to kind of have these in your toolbox. So if and when a close family member, a loved one, friend come out, you can deal with your own anxiety, right? Because a lot of times in the coming out process, people don't know what to say or they're right. gonna say the wrong thing. And so in their own anxiety, sometimes they shut down the conversation or end up trying to put the other person back in the closet. Mm. And that's not what you wanna do. You wanna be able to be present, be with them and know what are the do's and don'ts. So check out the video on Facebook Watch if you didn't see it already. I think it's really important to learn how to be a better ally. So, and part of that is taking on the responsibility to educate yourself. So I'd recommend watching that, a Facebook watch video with 
with Tan and Demi. And then go in and check out good videos, stuff to watch, stuff to read. Um, and being a better ally makes you a better partner, a better friend, a better sibling, a better parent. Um, so yeah, just check it out and, and educate yourself a little bit. Nice. Awesome. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled The Psychological Toll of Emotional Work in Same-Sex and Different-Sex Marital Dyads, written by Dr. Deborah Umberson at the University of Texas, Austin, Dr. Micah Beth Tomir at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Drs. Amanda Pollitt and Sarah Mernes at UT Austin. Recently published in the Journal of Marriage and Family, these authors explored a topic we've gotten a lot of feedback about from our listeners, emotional labor. I think our very first episode or second episode, we kind of talked about emotional labor, so I'm glad we're coming back to it. These researchers use the term emotion work and define it as work intended to bolster another person's emotional well-being by reading and managing that person's emotional needs. Emotion work is associated with better marital quality in couples because it helps partners get closer and become more intimate. It also, of course, benefits the spouse receiving the emotion work. But what are the costs of doing this emotional labor for the partner who is the emotion worker? There are some indications that it might be stressful and undermine the psychological health of emotion workers who the authors point out are more likely to be women than men. Even in same-sex marriages, where women married to women do more emotion work and value it more than men married to men. And the stress of emotion work may be especially intense in couples where a spouse has a bigger need for this kind of emotional support because they have depression, for example. Because research hasn't actually explored how emotion work affects the mental health of the partner doing the emotional labor, nor how gender might play a role in this, these authors jump in right here. So Sarah, how exactly did they do that? Yeah, so they had a really cool recruitment strategy. They, in the end, they had 378 couples, 157 lesbian couples, 106 gay couples, 230 heterosexual couples. All individuals were between the ages of 35 and 65 because their definition was midlife. So in total, they looked at 10 days of daily experiences data, which means their surveys, uh, questionnaires that these participants filled out every single day for 10 days from these cisgender midlife spouses in same sex and and different sex marriages. What they did first was they used the Massachusetts Registry of Vital Records to recruit same sex couples. So real real quick before we get too much further, can we um, define cisgender for people who maybe have heard that term but don't know exactly what that is? So how they're defining it here in order to answer their research question about how gender plays into the dynamics of emotion work in couples is they have recruited participants who identify as male and female and that that matches their sex assigned at birth. They first use the Massachusetts Registry of Vital Records to recruit same-sex couples. And they started in Massachusetts because it was the first state in the United States to legalize marriage for same-sex couples in 2004, which is brilliant. They pulled same-sex 
couples who'd been married between 2004 and 2015 from that public vital records list and met the midlife age requirements and then invited them to participate in the study through letters that they mailed to their home. And then they asked those couples, which is how they got most of their same-sex couples, and then they asked those couples to refer same-sex or different sex couples who also met the study requirements, which is how they got the remainder of their same-sex couples. And then to recruit different sex couples, they recruited them from the Massachusetts public records on households in each zip code in order to match different sex couples to same sex couples in that zip code. I know. So they really, really were intentional about how they recruited their participants in order to match them on things like relationship duration and age and geographic location so that they could really tease out the question being about the gender and whether the participant's gender or their partner's gender and whether they're embedded in a same sex relationship or different sex relationship relationship impacts this first question about emotion work and how it impacts psychological well-being, which is really so fascinating. That's amazing. Can I ask a quick question? Do you know if this had any funding? Because I would imagine this is a lot of labor, but also would be quite expensive as well. A lot of financial labor, huh? Not just emotional labor. (laughs) Yeah, though I'm sure emotional labor definitely went into it. Yes, they have a few different grants that they list on this paper, one of them being a grant from the National Institute on Aging that was awarded to the first author. So they also have made this data publicly available so that for researchers who are interested in looking at the sample, it's publicly available. Yeah. And because they started in Massachusetts, people who were married there, it meant that most of their couples were not living in Massachusetts, meaning they just had to be married there to be recruited. And then they, many of them had moved outside the state, which is a little bit more kind of geographic variation too. So then each of these days where they surveyed these, both of these partners and these couples, they measured their psychological well-being, their positive and negative affect, depression symptoms. They could then tell whether the participant's spouse had clinically significant levels of depression symptoms. Because part of their question was, does my doing emotion work for my partner impact my mental health negatively? But is that impact even more intense if my partner is depressed, has a larger perceived need for me assessing and managing their mood and their mental health. So they could control for my depression symptoms, my the participants' depression symptoms, but also they could assess whether their partner was clinically depressed. So then they assessed emotion work, which really they described it as tapping into assessing both the spouse's emotional state and engaging in efforts to manage the spouse's emotions, which so I pulled out these three questions because I think for people listening to this research and wondering, hmm, am I in the category of someone who does a lot of emotional work in my relationship? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, where we got a lot of feedback a year ago when we had that first episode was like, I've listened to this yeah. a few times or this really feels like me or, oh, I'm tired, tired just listening to it. So these three questions were, do you sense your spouse is bothered about something? Mm-hmm. Do you suggest solutions to your spouse's problems? And do you try to improve your spouse's mood, which um, they weren't just yes, no questions. They asked them on a scale, but it's not just about, am I keeping track of it, but am I also doing something about it? Interesting. Yeah. So then they controlled for the day they responded, participants own depression symptoms, like I said, whether there were children in the home, how long they'd been together, their education, race, employment, personal income, all the other kind of demographic factors that may impact psychological well-being. 
What they found through some really complex statistical modeling to, again, kind of answer these questions and control for, tease out all of these different variations, was first that women married to men performed less emotion work than men married to men, men married to women or women married to women, which was not what earlier research necessarily suggested at the gate. They don't make a lot of this, I don't think, kind of in their in their paper, but at a baseline, the baseline averages, that's what that what's what they found. And men married to men had higher average daily psychological well-being compared to all the other, all the other groups. But in relation to their question, their research questions, they did find that higher levels of emotion work across those 10 days meant that those participants scored lower on daily psychological well-being. Mm. So at their very first question, they did find a small effect on mental health. What they found, though, was that this affected the mental health of men and women similarly. So whether I am a man or a woman doing that emotion work, it affects my psychological well-being similarly. But the difference came when I am married to a man. Mm. So it didn't matter so much my gender, but it did matter if I was married to a man and that effect was stronger. It had a, the, my emotion work had a stronger negative impact on my mental health if I was married to a man. Interesting. The, yes. And the association was weaker for women married to women which they have some ideas about in terms of if there is maybe possibly some more reciprocation going on in those partnerships where both women maybe kind of value and do this emotion work. Yeah, maybe buffering against some of the negative impact on psychological stress if there's some of that buffering going back and forth. And more potentially more equality in that relationship. They then found that the negative effects on daily psychological well-being of doing more emotion work was greater for people whose Mm. spouse had more depression symptoms, which is what they hypothesized. But that effect again was stronger for respondents married to a man, regardless of whether the respondent themselves was a man or a woman. Yeah, which is really interesting. So what I, I mean, I really loved this paper. I've been waiting to talk about this Mm. paper because I think it, um, as a research study is just really so fascinating. I think the question is really interesting. I think yeah. it has all kinds of implications for how we understand the process of what goes on in relationships. And I really, I, I think that these findings really highlight bigger kind of relationship patterns. So we know that spouses are huge sources of emotional support, but it's possible that part of why that is that people generally list a spouse as a number one or very enormous source of so, uh, emotional support is because of that emotion work that is going on. We actively watch for and manage each other's emotions to try to improve how our partners feel, but that is not always an even process. So my question is, how is that reflective of relationship inequalities that might be observable in other domains too? And is that part of what impacts my psychological well-being as well? That this inequality and how I'm doing more emotion work may be reflected in other things that I'm also doing more of that's that's weighing on me. Or even just simply perhaps the perception that this is an imbalance could also weigh heavily on your psychological distress, recognizing that you're doing so much more of of the work. And they're not necessarily capturing patterns outside these 10 days, right? So it could be that my partner has a really hard time at work that cues into my 
needing to support them. And that wears on my psychological well-being. But if it is indicative of larger patterns of inequity in, in relationships, right. you could see how that could eventually negatively impact marital quality over time, let alone my health and well-being. Yeah, because yeah, this really, I think the big takeaway is that this comes with a cost for the mental health of the partner doing the emotion work, but especially if they're partnered with a man. Yeah. So, so the take home I'm getting is if you can, if you do have a choice, make sure to marry a woman. Make <laughs> sure. We are the superior. No, wait, that's right. And- <laughs> wait, that's not a thing. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm not sure that they don't have necessarily answer for that, but possibly that men may be less likely to kind of pick up on that going on and reciprocate. Uh, But I think what is also really important is this takeaway that if you're partnered to someone in this study with depression, your well-being is going to be much more intensely affected because as I, as I understand these findings or as I, as I see them, mental health is part of the relationship. It's part of the relationship patterns. Which is why there's other good research that couples therapy can be indicated for depression when somebody has some serious issues with their mood going on or chronic stress or whether or not they've been diagnosed with depression because they don't know whether or not these participants had clinically been diagnosed or were getting other kinds of care. Couples therapy might be helpful to kind of create some more balance in the relationship and not wear and tear on the mental health of the person who's trying to do all that support. But I I also think it's important to consider that seeking treatment for depression, especially if you are a man in a culture where I think there's a lot of dominant discourses about masculinity, making it so that men are less likely to kind of admit that they are stressed or struggling or sad Mm -hmm. or lonely or et cetera, seeking treatment for that could be not only so important for your own health, but really also valuable potentially to protect your partner's mental health. Yeah, I love those takeaways. In reviewing the study, Sarah, I thought it was just so like the recruitment, the process of recruitment, like you were highlighting was really, really well done and really thoughtful and good for them for doing that. And I really like that last takeaway you're talking about, right? The systemic nature of mental mental health and mental illness that if you think you being depressed is just going to affect you, especially as a dude, like that is not, that's not the case, right? If you are depressed, people are going to put in time and effort energy, especially if they care about you, help you feel better. And I think it's really important, especially as dudes, that we realize that something that we need to do is take care of ourselves, take the initiative, because if you are feeling down or depressed, that is not just going to affect you and what's going on with you, but will also likely affect your partner. And if you um, outsource the responsibility of your depression, your sadness to your partner, that is going to affect them as well. So taking that personal responsibility and a lot of time, men do get that opt out of like, oh, I don't have to take care of myself because somebody else will take care of me but that is going to undermine what you potentially want in your relationship. So I really, uh, this was an awesome find Sarah, and I'm glad you brought it because it's a really important piece of work. Um, and I really commend the authors for, for, for what they did in it. So fantastic. Hopefully they will become my new best friends, like my DoorDash people. (laughs) I know we just need to like start. Don't be creepy. Don't be creepy. Don't be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Play cool. Play cool. cool. They're going to be our best friends. It'll be cool. They'll be cool. It's fine. So you don't, live too, you don't live too far away from Austin. That's fine. We can totally do this. That's true. Yeah, so true. 
Pandemic over, new best friends. Let's go. <laughs> don't Could you scared? autograph my paper? Authors, don't be scared. That's don't be scared. The takeaway, we just... Wait, did we just undermine everything we just said? Yeah. yeah. It's fine. No? Yeah. What? We gotta, yeah. I got a yes and a no. Oh. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad <laughs> advice. When we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture, we hear relationship advice from parents, families, friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social medias, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good advice. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at attachedpodcast or tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at attachedpodcast or just go to the attachedpodcast.com website and send us a message. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube and share it with your loved ones or maybe people you don't like so much. That's fine. Just get the word out. It's it's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> so today, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you some wonderful things for us to discuss. I'm not saying it's wonderful advice. I'm saying it's definitely stuff for us to discuss um, and good or bad advice. So first off, an Instagram post that was sent to us uh, surprisingly through Instagram. I know that's going to be a shocker. It's from (laughs) at black and married. One of the most effective ways couples can achieve marital peace is learning the skill of resolving marital conflict. Good or bad advice? I'm going to say bad advice. This comes from the work of John Gottman, whose research suggested that 69% of problems are unsolvable. So if you get in your head that you're going to be able to solve any relationship problem and develop a skill to solve those problems anytime, you're going to be let down because you're just not going to be able to do it. So for that reason, I'm going to say bad advice. Okay. Bad advice. Shocked. I am shocked. I thought we were definitely coming out the same side of this one. Yeah, I'm going to say good advice. <laughs> Would have said fantastic advice, only now I feel like I need to soften my soften my uh, dance here. Yeah, no, I think that learning the skill of resolving marital conflict is not necessarily resolving a problem, specifically like the content. Yeah, oops, Jacob, oops. <laughs> yeah, I see it more. Uh, <laughs> We're not keeping score, but if we were, the resolving marital conflict being about, I think couples therapists everywhere would actually agree, conflict resolution skills are a key, key sort of skills that couples should know. And they're not necessarily, or definitely are not uh, innate and need learning. There's, I can't even break this down in a way that makes it more easy to understand. It's good advice. Otherwise you kind of get stuck in your same patterns over and over and over about, as Jacob is describing, the same exact issues to get yourself out of those arguments. Yes, you need good conflict resolution skills. 
So I think that this is good advice, but I do take Jacob's point that there is research that you says do. schools hmm. tend to have th- whatever they are arguing about. It tends to be the same thing throughout their entire, the, the entire course of their relationship. So knowing that I think is important and finding skills to help have better communication around whatever those problems are that probably aren't going to change in your relationship is key. But I understand where Jacob's coming from. Sometimes well, we're you, just Patricia. not I right. Was about, I was about ready to give back my PhD after that one. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> that would have been a, that would have been a fine reaction. I mean. That wouldn't have been an overreaction <laughs> at all, Jacob. That would have been completely proportional. <laughs> Okay, so next, it's from the Twitters. I'm pretty sure that's what the kids call them. At Alplicable, clever man. If you're starting to date someone new and you're excited about them, in all caps, text them back when you see their text. Don't do that. I'm going to sit on it for a while, for a bit, so I don't seem too eager. Nonsense. Good or bad advice? I'm going to say good advice because I think that, Sarah, thanks for the thumbs up. Thanks for reinforcing now that I have no confidence left. Poor Jacob. You know, I think if. Is that true? Do you not have confidence? Is that true? Slow blink at them. If you're interested in dating, just slow blink, squinty blink at them. Maybe they'll come closer. Over a text, that won't be creepy at all. (laughs) I think if you're really wanting to build a relationship, you don't want to base it on trying to play games or trying to show that you're not interested. Clear, consistent messages about how you feel and what's going on for you are important. I think maybe the only time when you would slow your role on a text message, if you're going to say something reactive or something angry Mm. or something you regret, it might be good to take a pause there. Um, but hopefully if you're just starting to date somebody and you're excited about them, you're not super angry with them at the beginning, but you know, that might be considered a red flag. (laughs) Yeah, it might be, but for the most part, good advice to say like, Oh, Hey, actually true story. When my wife and I first started dating, she's like, Jacob, you need to respond to text message in a more timely manner because you're really bad at it. I was like, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'll get better. And I have tried ever since then to respond in a timely manner. So this is good advice. I haven't succeeded. I've just put in a little bit of effort. As if it's a skill that is so hard to master. As if people haven't been giving you feedback about that for 15 years. Your Your poor wife doing all that emotion work. Oh my goodness. I'm going to just jump in here and also say good advice. I think that there's this, this tweet is referring to like the basic startup of relationships, right? That if I believe you're romantically interested in me, it's going to predict that I am more romantically interested in you. So there is no advantage to not communicating. So good, good advice. If you like someone and you see their text, hey, text him back. But I do take Jacob's point that like the only time not to like respond is when you're feeling reactive and you maybe want to calm down a little bit before sending text message full of hate words. So the next one I have is from the ticks and the talks. Um, It is a comedian named Daniel Sloss, S-L-O-S-S. He is from Scotland. And if anybody knows me, 
they know that I'm a sucker for that uh, Scottish accent. So I, I'm pretty sure his comedy's good, but I also really like his accent. Anyway, um, just for a heads up for people listening, this one has a bit of cussing in it. So if you have some kiddos listening in the back, just turn it, turn it down a bit. Of the opinion, if you do not love 100% of who I am, off you fucking fuck. Right? And that's, thank you, that's, that's not arrogance, that's not narcissism, that's the way every single person in this room should feel about themselves, because if you do not love 100% of who I am, you do not love me. You love an idea of me which you have falsely fabricated in your heads, and it is not my fault if I do not live up to those expectations. You have to love the good with the shit, mainly because I'm 90% shit. <laughs> But you have to love 100% of me because that's what makes me, me. If you don't love 100% of who I am, there's 7.5 billion people on this planet. Go out and find one of them. See if you love 100% of them and see if they can tolerate your fucking mum. Because <laughs> I'll love 100% of you. I will. Even the bits that annoy me, that's us to love them because that's, that's what makes you, you. That's who you are to me. Good or bad advice? You love someone, you love a hundred percent of them. If not, off you fucking fuck. So before I answer this, I'm gonna okay. say he's conflating two ideas. Okay. Right? This idea of love and commitment. Mm. Right? You can be committed to somebody and say, that means I'm going to accept this relationship and you, despite some of the parts that annoy me. That doesn't mean I love them. I don't think my wife loves that sometimes it takes me a long time to respond to text messages. <laughs> I don't think my podcast co-host love that sometimes it takes me a really long time to respond to Gchat messages. I just know that they are putting up with me because the commitment to the idea is important. So if you have the expectation that you are going to love everything about somebody, you're gonna be let down. But this idea that you are going to love be committed. everything about somebody, yeah, like I think that it's more important that you understand that you can accept those and be committed to this relationship despite the things that may bother you, frustrate you, that you don't necessarily love about the other person. So because if you take it that way, good advice, but because he's saying you must love 100% of me all the time, I'm going to say bad advice. Okay. Bad advice, but parts of it, good advice. Woods? Yeah, I think it's not great advice because I I mean, I agree with this last piece that Jacob is saying. <laughs> also the piece about the G-chat, I agree with. <laughs> I'm committed to the idea of him responding in a timely manner. <laughs> We don't love everything about any person. We don't even love 100% of ourselves. There are things that we wish would change and that's just part of being in relationships with other people. Um, and we can love them and be committed to them regardless of the pieces that we don't like and that will always potentially be part of what we have together. So even yes. if they don't respond to your Gchat messages, you can still love yes. them? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yes. Good. And it yeah. doesn't mean that you can't like critique their behavior <laughs> in a soft startup type of way, which I'm uh, still no. learning how to do. So <laughs> the one thing I, I wanted you guys to also talk about that, that the one thing that I liked about it is when he said, if you don't love a hundred percent of me, which I, I understand what you guys are saying, you love the idea of me. So you're, you're building this false 
idea of me that you're expecting me to live up to this, this false version of myself. And I think that is a really important part. And, and, and maybe if like he replaced the word love with accept, I think accept. That- I yeah, think you guys different. are more, more on board, Very different. but, but I, but I understand your point, but well, I'll change his words a little bit, but not accepting a hundred percent of what that person is, is creating a false ideal of someone or idea of someone. And then you expect your romantic partner to live up to whatever you've created in your mind is problematic and will set that relationship up, up for failure. Absolutely. What are your thoughts about that aspect of, of his video? I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think like Jacob is saying, he could be conflating the idea of love and commitment. I think he's also potentially conflating the idea of love and acceptance. And mm-hmm. I do, I do agree with you. I think acceptance is a, an enormous part of healthy relationships that we, we can accept parts of our, our partner that they might not be interested in changing or might not be something they will change so long as it, as it meets healthy, healthy standards of relationships and respects our, respects our boundaries. Yeah, no, I agree that that's conflating those two ideas. Yeah, I agree too. I think Esther Perel, one of our favorite people to talk about on this podcast talks about, you know, you're going to be married to three or four people throughout the course of your life. And you can decide whether that's the same person or different people, right? And I think that kind of gets this idea too of 100% acceptance also means that you're accepting that this person is going to grow and change. So even if you you love 100% of the person right now, that doesn't mean that that person is going to be 100% similar 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so I think too that if you have this ideal of somebody that you fell in love with that doesn't represent that you are accepting who they are, you are not then therefore also going to accept their growth later on. So next, another wonderful TikTok gem by at Heather OMG. Just so we're all aligned, confidence is I'm fucking great and so the fuck is she. It's not about being better than someone. Good or bad advice or good or bad conception of confidence. I said very confidently. I'm going to say on on the fence. Okay. I'm just, I'm using that as a placeholder so I can work this around in my mind and eventually I'll come to. Okay. Okay. Right. Because if I remember what she's saying there. You want me to play it one more time? Yeah. Play it one more time. Confidence is I'm fucking great. And so the fuck is she? It's not about being better than someone. I think there's good parts of this and bad parts of this, right? She says that there is like confidence is not necessarily being better than someone else. I think that's good advice, right? If you base your confidence on a comparison to somebody else's ability, I feel like, especially in a relationship, you are going to set your relationship up to be really problematic. Right, or confidence is... Or confidence is based on putting someone else down, right? Mm-hmm. I'm amazing, but they're all shit, right? Like that's. And, yeah. And, but I think the problematic part is like, I'm fucking great. That really isn't confidence, right? That is, I think if confidence can come from a place where you can say, I like, I don't need to necessarily like, hey, look at me, I'm fucking great. And I kind of feel like that's where she's getting at. I think people who are confident can sometimes just be like, okay, this is what I can do. And maybe I don't necessarily need that external validation, right? When you say I'm fucking great, I think it's sometimes asking for people to validate that, which we all need validation every once in a while. But if our only source of confidence 
is yeah. the external validation of others, then it's not, I would say, confidence is rooted in a way that you can pursue things and do things. I, I mean, granted, she's on TikTok. I don't know if that's how I perceived it, is that she's asking for validation necessarily. But I I, I definitely, if, if that is what she was doing, I, I do see your point. And I grant that she's also saying this on TikTok where she's getting likes and followers. So there's that. Woods. I'm not sure it's a very nuanced idea of confidence or like self-esteem might be the other way that I would say that. I think it's fine. I probably agree with the underlying idea she's trying to tap into about it is not helpful or valuable for me to undermine other people's self-worth. Right. That I can believe that other people have value and also believe that I see the um, catchphrase version of what she's maybe trying to tap into. And so I think that that is, yeah. I think that that is relevant. I also think relationships, it can probably be healthier if my confidence and my self-esteem isn't contingent um, know my own worth and my strengths and my weaknesses. And that that's not contingent on what other people think of me either is probably also what I would add. So we're saying, I think as a group on the fence, this has both positive and negative or good and bad advice qualities. I think the underlying message we think is good advice, but it seems like the way it was delivered was a little bit, uh, kind of rubbed us a little bit the wrong way. Is that fair? Okay, so the last one comes from Instagram at Parenting with Perspectacles. Kids who are, quote, easy to parent have less challenging or defiant behaviors, but often their self-worth takes a hit. So she goes on to say, kids testing boundaries is critical for their development of crucial things, including self-worth, self-confidence, sense of self, and ability to regulate emotions in healthy ways. So good advice, bad advice, kids who are easy to parent, meaning they have less challenging, defiant behavior, but often their self-worth takes a hit. Good or bad advice? I'm going to say bad advice because of the framing of this. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that she's saying that the only way that kids can challenge boundaries or understand or kind of develop the sense of identity is by being rebellious. And I think yeah, in defiant. some ways, yeah. yeah, right? Like, yeah, that can be part of it. But also, oftentimes, it's the system itself um, saying that maybe things that are normal are actually defiant or bad, right? Like, so I, I think that it is important for kids to test boundaries, to explore who they are. But I don't think necessarily having an easy kid means that they are going to not have resilience, right? Kids can develop in a lot of different ways and, and have a lot of different experiences. And just because their temperament might be different than other kids doesn't mean they're gonna have any love and developed identity or yeah or have less resilience so for that reason like i i like the idea that it's important for kids to explore boundaries explore their boundaries explore their identity do all that kind of stuff but to put that on like oh if you have an easy kid then they're they're screwed like it's bad advice bad advice woods
rules and monitoring behaviors is is all on a giant continuum, right? Of course, on, on one end, kind of what you're referring to, I think would go more towards almost toward kind of psychological, emotional abuse of just kind of completely shutting down, down um, your kids. But I think that there's a whole vast area that where it might not get to that. And I think that this idea that defiance and rule breaking is healthy, that means it's okay, is verging, in my opinion, on some classlessness and a, a little bit of yep. racial insensitivity. So I know there was research in, in, in the 90s and earlier on that parents from different classes value different behaviors in, in their children. Uh, people from more upper middle class and upper class value and teach their kids kind of challenging and kind of debate type skills and parenting to kind of negotiate these skills where parents from lower middle class and lower class uh, value in their children uh, obedience and capacity to listen and follow directions. And this is also goes in line with the types of jobs those families tend to then get and, and become successful in. Also, when you think about African-American families, children who might be even a little bit defiant in school system and in communities are seen as a danger and their lives then become in, in, in danger and in peril. We know about the school to prison pipeline is, is partly because the same behaviors are seen as more problematic in black children compared to white children. And we also know, well, even obeying police, but not certainly challenging police if you are a black man, oftentimes leads to your death. So I think that in these communities, teaching children obedience and teaching children to not be defiant, especially within certain contexts, is very, very critical, not just to their psychological health, but to their life as well. So I think that this advice might be good for certain communities, but I think we mm -hmm. need to look beyond mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, and recognize mm -hmm. that teaching kids obedience and teaching kids how to listen and follow directions is also really, really, really valuable. important and valuable mm -hmm. for them as well. And if the parent finds that valuable, then let's trust the parent that that is in mm -hmm. fact valuable for them. So thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get, get at us on all those social meds, as apparently I say, I didn't mm. know I did, about any relationship advice that you have heard and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.